You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 121, by Rudolf Steiner, 11 lectures entitled The Mission of the Folk Souls, by, uh, translated by Johanna Kallas. I believe I have her name right there. Yes. I'm going to begin before Lecture 1 with the preface, uh, which is written by Rudolf Steiner more than seven years after these lectures were given. In these lectures in Christiania in June 1910, I ventured to describe the psychology of the development of peoples. The lectures were based on what I have written concerning anthroposophically oriented spiritual science in my books titled Theosophy, CW9, An Outline of Esoteric Science, CW13, The Riddle of Man, CW20, Riddles of the Soul, CW21, and others. I was able to build on this foundation because my audience was familiar with the scientific view presented in those books. To the external reason for my choosing this viewpoint must be added another, more inward consideration, namely that ordinary, anthropological, ethnographical, and even historical studies are unable to provide an adequate basis for a genuine psychology of the characteristics displayed by different peoples. These sciences can take us no further than can anatomy and physiology in our search for knowledge about the soul life of human beings. Just as we have to look beyond the body and seek the soul in order to reach an understanding of the inner life of an individual, so must we explore the soul-spiritual element that underlies the characteristics of different peoples if we wish to understand these characteristics. This soul-spiritual element, stands above the mere interaction of individual souls with one another, and the sciences of today do not concern themselves with it. From their point of view, it is paradoxical to speak of folk souls as real beings in the same way as one speaks of the individual's real thinking, feeling, and will, and they find it equally paradoxical to link the development of peoples on earth with the forces of the heavenly bodies in space. But this ceases to be paradoxical when we remember that we are not likely to inspect a magnetic needle in the hope of finding within it the forces that determine its north-south orientation. We ascribe this to the effect of the Earth's magnetic field. We seek the reasons for the needle's orientation in the cosmos. So why should we not look in the cosmos rather than within the peoples themselves, for the reasons why they develop certain characteristics and embark on migrations and so on. Apart from the anthroposophical view as such, which, anyway, regards higher spiritual beings as a reality, there is something quite different that is also relevant to the content of these lectures. The development of peoples is seen as being founded on a higher spiritual reality, and it is in this reality that the forces which direct this development are sought. We then turn to the facts 
that are manifested in the life of the peoples, and these facts become intelligible on this basis. The life conditions of the various peoples and also their mutual interactions become comprehensible, whereas without such a basis there can be no true understanding in these matters. Either one must seek a basis for a psychology of peoples in a spiritual reality, or one must abandon any such folk psychology. I did not hesitate to refer to those higher spiritual beings with names that were customary during the early centuries of Christianity. A person from the Orient would use other names. Although the use of such terminology might appear unscientific nowadays, this is no reason to shy away from it. In the first place, it takes account of the essentially Christian character of our Western culture, and secondly, it will be more helpful for comprehension than would be the use of entirely new names or of the Oriental equivalents, which would only be understood by those who are attuned to the relevant culture. It seems to me that someone who wishes to investigate these spiritual matters, assuming he does not reject our whole approach, will not object to names such as angels, archangels, thrones, and so on, any more than physical science objects to terms such as positive and negative electricity, magnetism, polarized light, and so on. Those who relate the content of these lectures to the painful trials facing civilized humanity at this time will find that what I said then throws a good deal of light on what is taking place now. If I were giving these lectures today, one would find that the present state of affairs makes them entirely relevant. Thus, in the first lecture, you may read, quote, It is particularly important, especially at the present time, to speak about the mission of the individual folk souls, because the destiny of humanity in the near future will bring people together in far greater measure than has hitherto been the case in order to fulfill a mission common to the whole of humanity but the members of the individual peoples will only be able to offer their proper, free, and positive contributions if they have, above all else, an understanding of their own native origin, an understanding of what we might call the self-knowledge of their people, their folk. Close quote. The time has surely come when the destinies of humanity are demonstrating the truth of this view, Perhaps the topic of folk souls is precisely the one that can demonstrate how spiritual investigation into the real supersensible nature of existence can at the same time give truly practical perspectives and shed light on diverse questions posed by life itself. This cannot be done by a view of life that uses only ideas about the development and nature of peoples that are quite rightly appropriate for external science. Mechanistic physical science has been highly successful in bringing into being mechanistic, physical and chemical resources for the benefit of civilization. But in order to promote the spiritual life of humanity, we need a science oriented toward the spirit. Our time is sorely in need of such a science. Rudolf Steiner, Berlin, February 8, 1918 Lecture 1 Given in Christiania, Oslo now, June 7, 1910. It gives me great satisfaction 
to find myself speaking at greater length for the third time to our theosophical friends here in Norway. May I reply quite briefly to the very kind words of our good friend Eriksson, whose cordial greetings are equally cordially reciprocated from a similar depth of feeling. I hope that the lectures I am about to begin may contribute to your understanding of what we might call the overall picture of our worldview. I should like to point out that these lectures will have to refer to certain truths that are among the most crucial for this worldview, truths that are on the whole still fairly far removed from people's present way of thinking. I therefore ask those of our friends who are as yet less familiar with the worldview of spiritual science to bear with me, for it would not be possible to progress further if we did not from time to time surge powerfully forward, leap strongly into those parts of spiritual knowledge that are still rather far from people's present way of thinking, feeling, and perceiving. Some of the things I want to say will make demands on your goodwill, since to provide the necessary evidence and proof for my statements would demand more time than I have at my disposal. We should not be able to move forward if I could not call on your goodwill and some degree of spiritual understanding in certain matters. The province we will be touching on here is one that particularly esotericists, mystics, and theosophists have more or less bypassed even to this day, for the very reason that a higher degree of impartiality is needed in order to receive what has to be said without the resistance that can sometimes arise. What I mean will be best understood if you remember that at a certain level of mystical or spiritual development, a person is called homeless. This is a technical term. To characterize this without further ado, since we are not discussing the path of knowledge here, We can say briefly that a person who is homeless is one who, in his knowledge and understanding of the great laws of humanity, remains uninfluenced by anything that arises from his belonging to a particular people or place. A person who is homeless, we could say, is one who can comprehend the great mission of humanity as a whole without being influenced by the nuances of specific feelings or sentiments that arise from his association with his native soil. It follows that a certain degree of maturity in mystical or spiritual development demands impartiality in connection with something that we normally regard as a great asset, and that, on the other hand, in relation to individual human lives, is seen as the mission of the different folk spirits, as that which from the hidden ground of a folk from out of the folk spirits, furnishes individual concrete contributions to the collective mission of humanity. What we will be describing is that great asset from which those who are homeless must in some way liberate themselves. In every age, from ancient times right up to the present, those who are homeless have always known that a description of the full extent of what is meant by the characteristic of being homeless, would meet with very little understanding. In the first instance, the voice of prejudice would reproach such people for having severed their connection with their native soil, for having no understanding of what is otherwise dearest to human beings. 
But this is not the case. In reality, after having reached this sacred place, this homelessness, a person may come to see it as a detour on the way back to the essential substance of his people, to achieving a harmonious relationship with his native soil as a part of human evolution. It is necessary to draw attention to this from the outset, for there is every reason, especially at the present time, to speak quite impartially about the mission of individual folk souls. Just as it has been justified to maintain complete silence about their mission up until now, so is it justified today to begin to speak of this mission. It is particularly important because the destiny of humanity in the near future will bring people together in far greater measure than has hitherto been the case in order to fulfill a mission common to the whole of humanity. But the members of the individual peoples will only be able to offer their proper, free and positive contributions if they have, above all else, an understanding of their own native origin, an understanding of what we might call the self-knowledge of their people, their folk. The injunction, Know Yourself, played an important part in the Apollonian mysteries of ancient Greece. In the same way, in the not-too-distant future, the following injunction will be addressed to the folk souls. Know yourselves as folk souls. This maxim will have a specific significance for the activities of humanity in the future. In our age, however, it is particularly difficult to recognize the existence of beings who are not accessible to sense perception and do not therefore exist as far as physical knowledge is concerned. Perhaps it is not too hard for us to admit that human beings visible to our eyes may also possess certain parts, certain members, that are supersensible and invisible. Our present materialistic outlook does not find it too difficult to concede that beings, such as humans, who have an externally visible aspect, also have a supersensible, invisible aspect. But it is asking a great deal of our present age to accept the existence of beings who are not real from the ordinary point of view. So what is it that people now and again refer to as a folk soul, a folk spirit? At best, it is something that is acknowledged to be a common characteristic peculiar to some hundreds or millions of people concentrated in a certain geographic region. It is difficult to persuade people today that in addition to the millions gathered together in that region, a living reality also exists there, a reality that is identical with the conception of the folk spirit and that underlies this conception. To take a case that is not controversial, we might ask what people mean when they speak of the Swiss folk spirit. They would describe in abstract terms a few characteristics peculiar to the people inhabiting the Swiss part of the Alps and Jura Mountains, and they would find it understandable that this description bore no relation to anything discernible by external cognition such as that through the eyes or other organs of perception. This is like a preliminary step 
before developing the ability to frankly and honestly form thoughts that acknowledge the existence of beings who are not manifest to our senses, who do not present themselves to our ordinary physical capacities of perception, invisible beings who exist amongst those who we can perceive with our senses, invisible beings who are able to influence visible ones, just as the human being influences human hands or human fingers. Then it is possible to speak of the Swiss folk spirit in the same way as we speak of the spirit of a human being, which is as distinct from those ten fingers as the Swiss folk spirit is from the millions of people living among the mountains of Switzerland. The folk spirit is something else as well, namely a being just as a person is a being. But he differs from human beings in that the latter present a sense perceptible exterior to our organs of perception, whereas the folk spirit has no external appearance that can be perceived by organs of perception or seen with external senses, and yet he is unmistakably a real being. Today we will try to form some kind of idea of a real being such as this. How do we proceed in spiritual science if we want to form an idea of a real spiritual being? A typical example of how this may be achieved is by studying the human being. To describe the human being from the anthroposophical point of view, we differentiate between the physical body, the etheric or life body, the astral or sentient body, and the I, which we look upon as the highest member. We know that human beings of today consist of these bodies or members. We also know that as human beings we are looking toward a future evolution of humanity and that the I is working on the three lower members in order to spiritualize them and transmute them from their present lower state to a future higher form. The I, capital, will transmute the astral body so that it becomes something different from what it is now. The astral body will then be what you already know by the name of spirit self or manas. In similar fashion, the I will work at a higher level on the etheric or life body by transmuting it into the life spirit or buddhi. And finally, the highest achievement of the human being that we can envisage at present is the spiritualization of the physical body, the most intractable member of our being. When our present physical body, the densest and most material member, is transmuted into Atma, or spirit human, it will be the highest member. Thus we see three members of human nature that were developed in the past, one in which we live at present, and three more that will be newly fashioned by the eye in the future. We also know that something will come about between the work done in the past and the work that will flow on into the future to form the three higher members. We know that we have to think of the I itself as being inwardly differentiated. It is working on a kind of intermediate being. Between the astral body, which we have inherited from the past, and the spirit self or manas, which will be fashioned out of it in the distant future, there are three preparatory members, 
These are the sentient soul, which is the lowest member in which the eye has already worked, the intellectual or mind soul, and the consciousness soul. Of the spirit self or manas, which we are in the process of developing, very little is as yet present in the human being, at most only the initial stage. On the other hand, preparation has been made for this future work in the way human beings have to some extent learned to control the three lower members. They have learned to control the sentient or astral body by entering into it with their eye and forming the sentient soul within it. In the same way as the sentient soul has a particular relationship with the sentient body, so does the intellectual or mind soul have a particular relationship with the etheric or life body, in that the intellectual or mind soul represents a pale foreshadowing of what the life spirit or buddhi will be. A pale foreshadowing, certainly, but nonetheless a foreshadowing. And what now exists in the consciousness soul has been worked by the eye into the physical body in a special way, so that it is a pale foreshadowing of what one day will be spirit human or atma. Thus apart from the limited parts that have already been formed out of the astral body as the initial stage of the spirit self or manas, we can at present discern four separate members in the human being, one, the physical body, two, the etheric body, three, the astral body, four, the eye that is at work in the latter. And in addition, like a precursory glow of the higher members, the sentient soul, the intellectual soul, the consciousness soul. Thus, we have before us the human being as we know him today. Such is our understanding of the human being at the present stage of his evolution. We actually see how having succeeded in preparing the ground by shaping the sentient, intellectual and consciousness souls, the eye goes on to fashion the higher members. We see the eye working with the forces of the sentient, intellectual and consciousness souls on the astral body, which is the embryo of the spirit self. We currently see the human being at this moment of his work. Those of you, no doubt the majority, who have concerned yourselves with what we have been describing as our researches into the Akashic Chronicle, the evolution of the human being in times long past and the prospect of the distant future, will know that human beings, as I have portrayed them to you in brief sketches, have been evolving. We can look back into the distant past and see how they required long eons of time for their evolution in order to prepare the foundations, first for the physical body, then for the etheric body, and finally for the astral body. And then in order to develop these three members further, you will also be aware that the earlier parts of human evolution, for example the development of the astral body, did not take place when the earth was as it is now. For the astral body was developed during an earlier condition of the earth, that of old moon. Just as we recognize our life today as a consequence of earlier lives on earth, so do we also look back to former incarnations of our earth itself. The sentient soul and the intellectual or mind soul 
have come into being during the present existence of the earth. The implantation of the astral body, however, took place during the period of old moon, that of the etheric body during old sun, and that of the physical body during old Saturn. We thus look back to three incarnations of the earth. During each incarnation, one member that human beings now carry within them was first implanted as a seed and then developed further. There is also something else to be borne in mind when speaking of the old Saturn, old Sun and old Moon conditions. Living on the earth now we are going through the stage of being self-aware human beings. But during the earlier conditions of the earth's evolution there were other beings who went through this stage back then. It is immaterial whether we adopt the terminology of the East or the more familiar terminology of the West when describing them. Those who, during Old Moon, underwent the stage we are now going through, the beings immediately above us in rank, are called Angeloi, or angels, in the terminology of Christian esotericism. They are one stage higher than today's human beings, because they completed their human stage one period earlier. What we are now, they were during the period of Old Moon. But in the way they existed during Old Moon, they did not walk about there as we now do on the earth. They were beings undergoing their human stage, but they did not live in bodies of flesh as we do today. It was merely their human stage of evolution that corresponded with what we are undergoing now. In similar fashion, we find beings of a higher rank, who passed through their human stage during the period of Old Sun. These are Archangeloi, or Archangels, who are two stages above human beings and underwent their human stage two periods earlier. And going still further back to the first incarnation of our earthly existence, Old Saturn, we find that the beings whom we call the spirits of personality, Archai, or primal beginnings, we're going through their human stage. If we take our starting point from those beings who were human in the primeval past during old Saturn, and then follow the incarnations of the earth to our own time, we have a picture of the stages of evolution of the various beings down to the present day. To summarize, the primal beginnings or archai were human during old Saturn. The archangels, or archangeloi, were human during Old Sun. The angels, or angeloi, were human during Old Moon. And human beings are human during our Earth condition now. Since we know that we continue our evolution in the future, further developing our lower members, our astral body, our etheric or life body, and our physical body, the question arises, is it not equally natural that beings who have already experienced the human stage have now reached the stage at which they are transmuting their astral body into spirit self or manas? Just as during the next incarnation of the earth, the Jupiter condition, we will complete the transmutation of our astral body into spirit self or manas, so have the Angeloi, who underwent the human stage during Old Moon, 
completed the transmutation of their astral body into spirit self or manas, or they will do so during our present earth existence. They are now going through what we will only begin to do during the next incarnation of the earth. If we look still further back to the beings who underwent the human stage during old sun, we realize that they already experienced during old moon the stage we will have to experience for the first time in the next incarnation of the earth. They are now working on the task that we will perform when with our eye we transmute our etheric or life body into life spirit or buddhi. These archangeloi or archangels are thus beings who are two stages ahead of human beings. They are at the stage that we will reach when with our eye we transmute the life body into life spirit or buddhi. Looking up to these beings we can say, these beings are two stages above us. They are beings in whom we see, prefigured, what we ourselves will experience in the future. We look up to them as beings who are now transmuting their etheric or life body into life spirit or buddhi. In the same way, we look up to even higher beings, the spirits of personality. They are at a still higher stage than the archangels, a stage we will reach in an even more distant future when we are able to transmute our physical body into atma or spirit human. As surely as we are at our present stage of development, those higher beings are at the corresponding stage of their existence that I have just described. They are above us and are realities. Indeed, their reality is not unrelated to our human life on earth, for it interacts with our life and influences our human existence. All we now have to ask is, how do these higher beings intervene in our human existence? In order to understand this, we must bear in mind that in their activity, such beings appear different from human beings. Indeed, there is a considerable difference between these beings who are higher than human beings and those who are at present only at their human stage. This may seem strange to you now, but it will become entirely clear during the course of the next few days. True spiritual investigation shows that human beings, as we know them today, are in a certain way at an intermediate stage of their existence. The eye will not always work on the lower members in the same way as it does now. The whole human being is at present somehow an interrelated whole, a complete being, continuous and in no way divided. This situation can and indeed will be considerably modified in the future evolution of humanity, when ultimately human beings will have developed so far that they will be able to work on their astral body in full consciousness and, by means of their eye, transmute it into spirit self or manas, then they will experience in full consciousness a condition akin to the unconscious or subconscious state they are now in during sleep. Think of the condition we are in while asleep. With our astral body and our eye, we depart from the physical and etheric body, leaving them lying in bed, while we hover outside them. And now, imagine that 
while you are in this state, the consciousness arises, quote, I am an I, close quote, and that this consciousness is as awake in this spirit body as it is when you are awake in the daytime. How remarkable would be your impression of yourself. From one position you would feel, quote, here I am, close quote, and perhaps down there, far away from this first position, quote, that is my physical body and my etheric body. They are over there, and they belong to me. But with my other members, I am hovering outside them, up here, close quote. When we become aware in our astral body, outside our physical and etheric body, then, however highly developed we might be on the earth, it is only in our astral body that we can move about freely from one place to another or be active in the world independently of our physical body. But we cannot yet do this with our physical or etheric body. In the distant future, however, we will be able to direct them from the outside and accompany them from some place in, let us say, northern Europe to another place. We will say, continue on, and then we will steer their movements while we are outside them. This is not yet possible, but it will be possible when we have evolved from the stage of Earth to that of Jupiter, the next stage in the evolution of our planet. Then we will feel that we can direct ourselves from the outside. That is the essential thing. And it will lead to a split from what we have described today as the human being. Materialistic consciousness is at a loss as to what to make of this. It is unable to realize that what is today already taking place outside human beings will one day take place within them in a similar way. Such phenomena exist already and people would be able to perceive them if only they would pay proper attention. They would then see that there are certain beings who, for example, have undergone this kind of development prematurely. If human beings wait for the right time in the Jupiter condition of evolution, they will be able to guide their physical and etheric bodies. But some beings have developed prematurely without waiting for the proper time. Such prematurely developed beings are to be found among the birds, namely the migratory birds that make great journeys every year across the face of the earth. Here we have an example of the group soul that is linked to the etheric body of every individual bird. Just as the group soul directs the regular migration of birds across the earth, so will the human being, after having developed the spirit self, or manas, take command of the physical and etheric body and set them in motion. The human being will do this in a still higher sense, setting them in motion from the outside, when he has developed to the point where he is also working to transmute his etheric or life body. The beings who can already do this today are the angeloi, or archangels. These are beings who can already do what human beings will be able to do some day, beings who can accomplish what is called, quote, directing one's etheric and physical bodies from the outside, close quote, but who are able, at the same time, to work upon their own etheric body, 
try to form an idea of beings living and working with their eye, as it were, in the spiritual atmosphere of our earth, whose eye has already transformed the astral body, and who, with their fully developed spirit self, or manas, continue to work on our earth and into human beings by transmuting our etheric or life body. These are beings who are themselves at the stage of transmuting the etheric or life body into buddhi or life spirit. If you imagine such beings who are at the archangelic stage among the spiritual hierarchies, you will then have an idea of what we call folk spirits, the directing folk spirits of the earth. The folk spirits belong to the rank of the archangeloi or archangels. We will see how they, for their part, direct the etheric or life body and how they thereby work down into humanity and thus draw humanity into the sphere of their own activity. When we observe the various peoples of the earth and focus on specific examples, then in their life and activity and in their specific characteristic traits, we will see a reflection of what we may regard as the mission of the folk spirits. When we recognize the mission of these beings, they are the inspirers of the peoples, then we are able to say what a people really is. A people is a correlated group of individuals directed by one of the archangels. Whatever the individual members of a people do or undertake is inspired by that archangel. Hence, if we can conceive that these folk spirits, like human beings on the earth, display individual differences, we will have no difficulty in understanding that the individual peoples reflect the particular mission of their individual archangels. If we have a clear inner picture of how in the history of the world one people succeeds another and how peoples work side by side, we can then imagine, at least theoretically, and we will have more and more concrete evidence in the coming lectures, how everything that takes place is inspired by those spiritual beings. At the same time, it will also be clear to us that in addition to this activity of successive peoples, something else takes place in human evolution. In the period of time following the great Atlantean catastrophe, which so completely changed the face of the earth that the continent which lay between today's Africa, America, and Europe was submerged, we can distinguish periods during which the great peoples were active, the peoples from whom the post-Atlantean cultures arose, the ancient Indian, Persian, Egypto-Chaldean, Greco-Roman, and our present culture, which will eventually pass over into the sixth cultural age. We also realize that various inspirers of the peoples have successively been at work in these cultures. We know that the Egypto-Chaldean culture continued long after the Greek culture had begun, and that this Greek culture in turn continued on after the birth of the Roman culture. Thus we may observe the coexistence and succession of the peoples. In addition to the evolution of peoples and all that is associated with it, a progressive evolution of humanity also takes place. 
It is not a matter of considering one particular culture to be superior or inferior to another. To express a preference for the ancient Indian culture, for example, is a matter of personal opinion. But if personal opinion does not matter to us, then we will be indifferent to how things are valued. For we will know that regardless of how they are valued, humanity will continue to go forward, even if this comes to be seen later on as a decline. Necessity leads humanity ever onward. When we compare the various ages, 5,000 years before Christ, 3,000 years before Christ, 1,000 years before Christ, we find something else in addition to the folk spirits, something that transcends the folk spirits, yet something in which they all participate. You can observe this now. How is it that so many persons are able to sit together in this hall? Individuals who have come here from many different countries and who understand each other or are trying to understand each other when they touch upon vital questions that have brought them together here. All these various persons come from the spheres of activity of widely differing folk spirits, and yet they have some common ground of understanding. In the same way, various peoples were able to understand one another in the past because in every age there is something that transcends the different folk souls and brings them together, something that is more or less understood everywhere. This is the time spirit or spirit of the age. There is a time spirit or spirit of the age in Greek times and another in our own. Those who understand this spirit in our time are drawn toward spiritual science. This is what transcends the individual folk spirits, in that it reflects the spirit of the age. At the time when Christ Jesus appeared on the earth, his forerunner, John the Baptist, expressed what might be termed the time spirit with the words, quote, Change your attitude of soul, for the kingdoms of the heavens are at hand. Close quote. Thus, it is possible to discover the time spirit of every age for it is something that enters into the activities of the folk spirits, activities that we have already characterized as the weaving of the archangeloi. Today's materialists regard the time spirit as something entirely abstract, devoid of reality, and even less can they accept the time spirit as an authentic entity. Yet the term time spirit conceals the existence of a real being, one who is three stages above that of humanity. It conceals the identity of beings who underwent their human stage during old Saturn, the most distant past condition of the earth, and who, at the present time, are working out of the spiritual aura of the earth to transmute the earth, and thus also to complete the final phase of transmuting their own physical body into spirit, human, or atma. We are here dealing with exalted beings, beings so exalted that thinking about their qualities is likely to make our heads swim. These are the beings who might be described as the inspirers, or if we choose to use the technical expression of esotericism, the intuitors 
of the time spirit or time spirits. They take it in turns to do their work, handing it on from one to the next. From age to age they pass on their mission to their successor. The spirit of the age who was active during the Greek age handed on his mission to his successor and so on. They pass on their work from one to the next. As we have seen, there are a number of such time spirits or spirits of personality who work as time spirits. These spirits of personality, these intuitors of the time spirit, are higher in rank than the folk spirits. In every age, one of these time spirits is predominant, setting his seal upon the whole period and assigning to the folk spirits their specific tasks. The general character of an age's time spirit becomes specialized and individualized in each of the folk spirits. Then in the following age, another spirit of personality, another of the archai, takes over. After a certain number of ages have elapsed, a time spirit has evolved further. We must picture this in the following way. When we die in our time, having completed our present stage of evolution, our individuality passes on the consequences of this earthly life to our next life on the earth. And this is how it also is for the spirits of the age. Every age has one such time spirit, and at the end of the age he hands over the task to his successor, who in turn hands it over to his successor, and so on. The earlier spirits, meanwhile, continue their own development. Then the spirit whose turn was longest ago takes over again, so that in a later age, while the others are proceeding with their own evolution, he takes over again and infuses intuitively into humanity, which has also progressed, what he himself has acquired for his higher mission. We look up to these spirits of personality, to those beings who may be referred to by the somewhat colorless term spirit of the age. As human beings we pass from incarnation to incarnation. But if we look into the future, we know for certain that as we ourselves progress from age to age, ever different time spirits will be governing events on our earth. And our present time spirit will return too. We will meet him again. Because it is characteristic of these spirits of personality to progress as though in circles and return again to their starting point, because of the way they go in cycles, they are also known as, quote, spirits of cyclical periods, close quote. We will explain this expression in more detail later. These higher spiritual beings, then, who issue their commands to the folk spirits are also known as spirits of cyclical periods. The reference is to those cyclical periods which human beings also go through when age by age they return to earlier conditions and repeat them in a higher form. This repetition of the characteristics of earlier forms is quite noticeable. If you examine carefully the stages of human evolution on earth in the light of spiritual science, you will find these recurrences in a variety of ways. Thus there is a repetition in the way the seven ages, which we call the post-Atlantean epochs, 
have been following one another since the Atlantean catastrophe. The Greco-Roman stage, or cultural age, marks what you might call the turning point in our cycle and will therefore not be repeated. This stage is followed by a repetition of the Egypto-Chaldean age within our own age. Another era will follow, a repetition of the Persian age, although of a somewhat different kind. And then will come the seventh age, which will be a repetition of the ancient Indian culture, the age of the holy rishis. So that in that future age, certain things that had been implanted in ancient India will reappear in a new form. It is the time spirits who guide these events. In order for the progressive development of successive ages to be realized among the various peoples of the earth, and for so many different human types to arise in the various geographical areas or linguistic communities, and for the many forms of expression in architecture, art, and science to come about and to adapt to all the metamorphoses and whatever else flows into humanity from the time spirit, in order for all of this to happen, we need the folk spirits, who, in the hierarchy of higher beings, belong to the archangels. Now we require a further intermediary between the higher missions of the folk spirits and those here on earth who are to be inspired by them. You will easily see, perhaps initially in an abstract form, that it is the hierarchy of the angels who are the mediators for the other two types of spirits. They are the intermediaries between the folk spirit and the individual human being. This mediator between the human individual and the archangel of a people is needed so that human beings can receive what the folk spirit wants to pour into the whole people, thus enabling each individual to be instrumental in fulfilling the mission of his people. So now we have looked up to the beings who attained their human stage three stages before earthly human beings reached this stage. And we have seen how these beings have consciously entered into humanity and how they intervene in our evolution on earth. Tomorrow we shall show how far the activity of the archangels working down from above, from out of their eye that has already developed manas or spirit self, and is perfecting the etheric or life body of the human being, is expressed in the achievements, attributes, and character of a people. The human being is directly associated with the work of the higher beings. He is an integral part of it, because as a member of a particular people, he is in the midst of that work. It is true that the human being is, in the first place, an individual, a creation of his I, but he is not only an individual. He is also a member of a particular people, something over which he has no control as an individual. As a member of a particular people, the individual has no choice but to speak the language of his people. This is not an individual achievement. It does not stem from his individual initiative. It is the bed of the very river that envelops him. We mean something entirely different when we speak of an individual achievement. 
As we observe the life and activity of the folk soul, we will remember what is involved in the progress of an individual and what the individual needs to do in order to achieve this progress. We shall see what determines not only his own particular development, but also the development of entirely different beings. Thus we see how the human being is integrated into the ranks of the hierarchies, and how from age to age beings whom we already know from another aspect cooperate with him. We have also observed how these beings are able to express themselves in a variety of unique ways, and how what they have to offer can enter into the life of human beings. The guiding principles of each age are determined by the time spirits. The individual folk spirits are responsible for disseminating the spirit of the age over the whole earth. While the time spirits inspire the folk spirits, the angels act as mediators between the folk spirit and the individual human being, so that these individuals may fulfill their mission. That individual human beings become instruments in the mission of the folk spirits is made possible because the angels or angeloi stand between the human being and the folk spirit. One purpose of these lectures will be to show how this wonderful pattern reveals the working of the various folk individualities of the past and present. In the next lecture, we will begin to shed light on the concrete details involved in the weaving of this pattern, which we have only outlined briefly today, this spiritual pattern that represents our immediate destiny in the world. The end of Lecture 1